a night like no other. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Do not watch one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray one more time. Our Father, we are walking on sacred and somber ground this morning.
and we would pray that you would take us out of the darkness and bring us into the light. We would pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to see and a spiritual heart that beats toward the glory of our great Savior, the Servant King, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. I remember the night that I met with my coaches my sophomore year in college. It was after our fall season, and I sat down in their office, and they told me the depth chart of... uh, of first base, the position in which I played. And they said, Ryan, you're not first and you're not second, but you're third on the depth chart. And I said, wait a minute, there are only two first basemen. And they said, yeah, but the way that you have played this fall, we're going to move our catcher to first if something happens to the other guy. I remember that night because I left that meeting and I felt like such a failure And the fact was, objectively, I could not argue with them. I hit 204 that fall. And I remember getting alone and crying out to God, remembering how my heart hurt and my soul hurt because I gave my life, my soul, my body, my strength. I go to practice early and I stay late and I I work on hitting and I practice on my mechanics and, and it just yielded nothing, but at least in that fall, failure. And I remember that night and it was a dark one. And I remember not too long after that, that we got a call that one of our teammates had been killed in a car crash. I remember being stunned. I remember not knowing what to think. I had laughed with him. I had run with him. I had broken bread with him. And I remember that night, I didn't didn't know what to think, but I just remember it being dark. It's the first person, someone really close to me, who died. I remember the night that I got food poisoning. And I remember laying in the bathroom floor, curled up, unable to move, in excruciating pain. And I remember loudly wanting to die. Jamie was somehow able to get me to the car and carry me to the hospital in order to get the the treatment that I needed. But I remember that night. It was one of the darkest nights of my life. And I remember the night that one of our loved ones died. I remember that being a dark, dark night. I remember the night of 9-11. I was preaching that night to a group of students. I remember trying to take in all that we had seen and all that we had heard and all that we were supposed to be feeling. And I remember, and as you who are old enough probably remember that night, it was a dark night. And I have had my collection of dark nights. And I know you have had your own collection of dark nights. But in my dark nights... There has always been one undergirding reality. God was with me. And what we just read is a dark night like no other. 
Because God was telling his son, I will not be with you. And so we are walking not only on sacred and somber ground, but this is a night of sadness, a night of agony. It is a night of betrayal, a night of failure, a night of denial, a night of anger and wrath. But more than anything, it is a night of spiritual darkness. And so let us learn from the Savior and let us be informed by His love for us tonight. I believe that Mark is wanting to show us two realities. Two realities this morning. The first reality is the failure of the disciples. And the second reality is the passion of the Savior. The failure of the disciples and the passion of the Savior. And I believe that Mark wants to show us that to deepen our worship of Him of God, and to propel us toward faithfulness to Him through watching and praying and offering up our lives in spiritual alertness and attention to the Savior. That's what I believe. And so may God do that for us right now. Let's first look here at the failure of the disciples. The failure of the disciples. First we see that they are failing to be quiet and just to listen to the Savior. They've sung a hymn. It's probably Psalm 118 where they have been singing. It's the, it's the Last Supper. It's the Passover. They conclude their time of celebration by singing Psalm 116, 117, and 118. And it's time of, they think, a time of celebration and anticipation and all of this. And, and so they sing this hymn and they leave the upper room and they go outside the city walls of Jerusalem and they go into the Mount of Olives, which is a mountain that is about the, the, essentially the size of Chiha. It's really, really tall, covered with olive trees, which is obviously why it's called the Mount of Olives. And they go there, and Jesus begins to speak to them. And if you see in verse 27, He begins to speak and He says, You will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after that, I'll be raised up and come before you, come to you in Galilee. And you would think that at, the, at this moment, the disciples would be all ears They would be attentive to every word that Jesus has spoken. He has just ushered in news, information in this supper that they are absolutely taken back by. That He doesn't finish that final cup of the Passover meal because He says, I'm about to go away and then I'll return. And this is all new to them. And they should be soaking in His words. But instead, Peter confronts Jesus, corrects Jesus, And what does he say? Even though they all fall away, I will not. He's just unwilling to be teachable, to be humble, and to listen to the Lord Jesus in this moment. And Mark wants us to see that. He wants us to see that not only Peter, and Peter as representative of the rest of the disciples, they are quick to butt in and to offer their ten cents just like they have been in the last four chapters that we have read in this book, in the last six chapters that we have read. This is not uncommon for what we have seen already. 
And so they are failing to be quiet and simply to listen to the servant king teach them. And they're failing to be humble and teachable so that they can soak in what his message is for them. And if you look down at 32 and following, what else are they failing to be? They are failing to be prayerful and alert. He says to them, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Does that sound familiar to y'all at all? Yeah. At the end of chapter 13, that's exactly what he has said over and over and over again. And he's saying, be spiritually alert. The, 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 The time of temptation is right now at hand. Get your spiritual antennas up. Get your armor on. Realize that the devil is coming to sift you. Realize that you're going to be tempted to fall away. Realize that you're going to be tempted to betray. You're going to be tempted to walk away. You're going to be tempted to run as far away from me as you can. So watch, be alert, and pray. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is not asking them to watch and pray in some way to be a comfort to Him, in some way to be a friend to them. He knew primarily that they were in trouble. And so he says, watch and pray. Cry out to God for help, the one who can help you. And cry out to Him and say, keep me alert. I know that my flesh is weak. I know that my pride is great. I know that the lust of my flesh is also strong. So Lord, please help us in this hour. And what do they do? They sleep. They sleep. They sleep. And I believe that when Mark says that they have heavy eyes, I believe that is true. They have had a long meal. It's been a long day of celebration and contemplation. But there is something deeper that Mark is trying to get to. Not only are they physically sleepy, but they are spiritually sleepy as well. They are spiritually lazy and slothful in the moment where they need to be alert and awake and on guard. So what happens? Mark goes on to tell us that not only are they a failure in listening, not only are they a failure being teachable, not only are they a failure of being humble, they are a failure to be faithful and true. Judas has already betrayed him. Peter is about to deny him. The disciples are about to run away. They're going to be nowhere to be found. And Mark is telling us all around that there is this unnamed woman who comes to Jesus in the home of of the one who who had had leprosy, Simon, and she goes in and she pledges her allegiance and offers her love to him by putting that, that oil and ointment over his head. And then later, we're going to see that an innocent bystander carries the cross of Jesus all the way up to Golgotha. We're going to see a Roman soldier openly and publicly declare, he just killed Jesus, but then he declares, surely this man was the Son of God. And we're going to see this man, what Joseph of Arimathea, who we've not read about at all, is the one who's able to provide the tomb for Jesus to be buried. And then we're going to see a group of ladies who out of loyalty and love for Jesus show up at the tomb in order to anoint His body. Where are the disciples? Where are they? 
They're nowhere to be found. Mark is driving us to see their failure. And he's not wanting us to simply point the finger at Peter and James and John and Andrew and Bartholomew. He's wanting us to see ourselves in this picture. He wants Ryan Limbaugh to look at this text and he wants to say, Ryan, that is you. That is you. And he's wanting us to see our depravity, our sinfulness, our unfaithfulness, our disloyalty, our our lack of love, our lack of affection. He's wanting us to just sit on that and meditate on it as painful right now as it might possibly be and and as it might possibly be. And he's wanting to say, just rest there for a moment. And so I want to ask you right now, Have you been unfaithful? Have you been disloyal? Have you been unloving? Have you run away? Have you denied? Have you betrayed? Have you been angry? Mark would say, You have, because you're like the disciples. And you need to know that because you'll never understand the love of Jesus and the love of God and you'll never understand the Garden of Gethsemane unless you admit who you are, unless you admit what you are. Now I'm convinced that Peter is the one who, who gave most of the information in the Gospel of Mark to Mark. And so I'm convinced that Peter is the one who, who reveals this shameful information about himself to Mark. And so there are two things I'm convinced of. The first thing I'm convinced of is that Peter was embarrassed by his actions. Peter was shamed, ashamed about his actions. Peter... Peter would hate to admit all of these truths. But the second thing I'm convinced of is that he did admit to them. He did confess them. Why? Because of the passion of the Savior. That's our second observation. The passion of the Savior. If you just look down, we see the reality here of the passion of the Savior. Now by passion... The dictionary describes passion as a powerful or compelling emotion. A powerful or compelling emotion or feeling. And there is no more powerful and no more compelling emotion than in all of Scripture than what we see right here in the Gospel of Mark, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so let's observe the passion of the Savior. We see, first of all, the passion that He has in His intentional shepherding of the disciples. Listen, he could have been silent to the disciples that night. He could have not said anything, but he said, listen, Scripture says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will fall away. He intentionally gives them the truth about what's going to happen, and this is grace to them. And it is grace time grace when he says, but listen, you guys are going to fall away. 
It's already been written in the book. I'm now confirming it in my words to you. But listen to me. I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to come to you in Galilee. Understand this grace. Understand this mercy. This is the deal. You're going to turn. You're going to deny. You're going to betray. You're going to run. You're going to walk away. But I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you. And so take heart. Take courage. Be confident in me, not in yourself. I'm going to give you grace. Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ knows that you're going to fail Him. He knows that you're going to turn away. He knows that you're going to deny. He knows that you're going to get angry. He knows that you're going to fail. And you know what He says? I'm going to love you anyway. And I'm going to come to you anyway. That is grace. That is grace. Let's swim in that for a moment. And He's trying to offer them grace right here. He's trying to offer them mercy, but they won't have any of it in their failure, in their ignorant arrogance. But He's intentionally shepherding them, and He's showing them this is reality. Not only do we see His passion in His intentional shepherding, but we see His passion in His pervasive agony. Put your eyes down on the text. Verse 32 says, They went to a place called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means oil press. Oil press. All right, It is a garden in the Mount of Olives that is likely uh, distinguished by a rock wall that is surrounding it. And inside that garden are not only olive trees, but an oil press. And so you take the olives from the trees and you press them to make olive oil. And this was a place that Jesus and His disciples went to frequently in order to get a loan from everyone else and in order to pray. And the reason we know that this was a frequented spot of Jesus and His disciples for a lone time in prayer is because Judas knew exactly where to go to find Jesus. And so Jesus is alone in Gethsemane praying. And He says, sit here while I pray. And He takes Peter and James and John. Why does He take them? Well, sure, certainly they are His inner three. But as you can recall, Peter and James and John are specifically the ones who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus. They are specifically the ones who have said things like, I can drink the cup. We can be baptized with the same baptism that you are. If everybody else denies you, I will not deny you. And so Jesus brings them a little closer so that they can be observant of the kind of cup that Jesus will drink and the kind of baptism with which He will be baptized. And He says to them, My soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch. We see the passion of the Savior here in His pervasive agony. His all-consuming agony. Mark says he was greatly distressed. He was agonizing in both body and soul. He was troubled. When he says my soul is very sorrowful, it's a word that means I am completely engulfed. I am completely surrounded by sorrow. I am completely surrounded by distress. In other words, Jesus is saying there is a tsunami of of wrath 
There is a tsunami of judgment. There is a tsunami of God's condemnation that is coming my way and I feel covered up by it. It's pursuing me. It is coming after me and I can't do anything about it. I am distressed. Look down at the text. He says, I am very sorrowful even to death. This moment almost killed Jesus. Other gospel writers says that he begins to sweat drops of blood. That's how anxiety filled, fear filled Jesus was. And so he is experiencing not only the agony of physical torment, the agony of spiritual torment, but the agony of the the impending and inevitable separation that he has with his father. Look back down. Verse 35. He went a little farther and he fell on the ground. Does it say that he kneeled down? It doesn't say that he found a nice place in order to have a quiet time that would be really enjoyable or relaxing. He fell on the ground. It was like the force of what he felt in his soul and in his body. He literally just fell. And he prayed. Now I want you to make observation that Mark indicates in verse 35 that Jesus says, if it's possible, would this hour be passed from me? And then in verse 36, he actually records the prayer of Jesus and says, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. And then he says, look, in verse 39, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And then in verse 41, he came the third time and said to them, I just want you to see that at least three times, if not four times, Jesus is on the ground praying to the Father, Father, Please let this cup pass from me. Please let this hour pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. This was not one simple prayer. This was over probably a period of three, four hours that Jesus is laboring in prayer to His Father, saying the same thing. So I want you to see this all-consuming agony that Jesus felt. I want you to see it most clearly in verse 36 by His desperate prayer. Look at his desperate prayer. He said, Abba, Father. Jesus is drawing on the intimate fellowship and relationship that he has with his daddy. The word Abba We could go on and on about the little nuances of it. The bottom line is Jesus is calling the Father His Daddy. He's saying, Daddy, Papa, I'm calling on our intimate relationship, the relationship of eternal love which we have enjoyed, the relationship of perfect fellowship, holy harmony, Every time I've ever called on you when I've lived 
on this earth. You have flooded me with your affirmation, flooded me with your love, flooded me with your pleasure by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have affirmed me at every turn and I have enjoyed sweet and glorious fellowship with you. I'm calling you by name, Abba, Daddy, Father, Papa. I call on you right now. And then he brings theology into the play. Into play. Look at what he says. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. It's like he's drawing on Psalm 115, verse 3. What do the Gentiles say? The Gentiles say, where is their God? But the psalm says, our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. You know that verse? That's a verse that tells us about the sovereignty of God in all that He is and in all that He does. God does what He wants, when He wants, how He wants, to whomever He wants. Jesus is calling on the sovereignty of His Papa, Daddy at this moment and He says to Him, you can do all things. And so what does he do? He makes a request. What is his request? Remove this cup from me. Mark would have us observe, first of all, the object in this request. The object in this request is the cup. And the Old Testament is full of allusions and references to the cup. You want to read Ezekiel 23? If you want to read Isaiah 51, those two passages are probably the primary passages in the Old Testament that give us a clear indication of what the cup is. The cup is God's judgment upon sin. The cup is God's condemnation of sinners. The cup is God's righteous and holy wrath against rebellion and sin. Listen, listen. We we have we have a a pervasive common theology in this country that would say, My God is a God of love, He is not a God of wrath. And we affirm that our God is a God of love. And we say, that's why He's a God of wrath. Have you ever loved someone deeply? And when you see that person hurt by someone else, are you angry? Yeah, because you love them. Have you ever been angry when you see someone that you love deeply destroy themselves and hurt themselves? Do you just stand idly by and have no emotion whatsoever? No, you get angry. Because the deeper the love, the greater the anger when something goes wrong. And God is angry at sin. He looks down at humanity and He sees violence. He sees brutality. He sees racism. He sees... He sees rebellion and disobedience and dishonoring to parents. He sees self-destruction. He sees selfishness and idolatry. He sees the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. He sees all of this ugliness and the way that we treat one another and the way that we treat Him, and it makes God angry. 
Because He says, I have created you to love me. I have created you to enjoy me. I have created you to enjoy one another, to be in harmony with one another, to be in unity with one another, to walk in peace, to walk in love, and to walk in the kind of relationship that me, the Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed from eternity past. And He looks down and He sees the mess that we have made and He says, I'm angry. And I am going to punish rebellion and sin because I am not just merely a doting grandfather. I am also a just judge and I'm going to exercise my justice and my judgment. And so, Jesus says, remove this cup. That is, remove your righteous wrath your righteous anger, and the infinite measure of condemnation, the infinite measure of hell that you're about to pour on my soul and on my body. Make no mistake, Jesus is not saying remove these chief priests and Roman soldiers, remove this this cross, remove this wood, remove these these, uh, nails, remove that cat of nine tails. No, oh, certainly that's involved. But that is not what he's referring to primarily. He is referring to the condemnation that he's about to receive from his own daddy, from his father. So he asks, please remove it from me. You know, I find it ironic, not in a funny way, in a devastating way, that we get no hint of the kind of shock and the kind of weight that Jesus is feeling right now. We get no hint of that before this moment. Think about it. Jesus knows why He's come, but He goes around healing diseases, raising the dead, forgiving sins, cleansing unclean people. He goes around uh, forgiving a... A person says, take up your mat, go home, uh, go and walk. He does all of these wonderful things and he's compassionate. And then he gets to Jericho and there's this guy, this blind man in Jericho, and he heals this blind man who, who then becomes a worshiper of Jesus who already was. And they begin to march down to Jericho. I mean, march down from Jericho down to Jerusalem. And you would think that now that they're headed toward Jerusalem, there might be a bit of a pause there might be a bit of, wait a minute, I don't know that I'm ready yet. I mean, have, have you all ever known that you were, had to go do something and you knew how bad it was going to be, how terrible it was going to be? Did you just get in your car and drive as fast as you could to get there in order to do it? No, you find every reason not to be in a hurry. You find every reason to delay the inevitable, right? Yeah. But what does Jesus do? He gets out in front of the crowd in Jericho and leads the way to Jerusalem. And it says that the disciples are astonished at him. They're astonished at his leading the charge down to, because they know nobody in Jerusalem likes him. None of the leaders like him. They want him dead. And yet here Jesus is marching. And then he storms into the temple and he preaches with courage and boldness and truth and he ends up clearing the temple out. I mean, this man is courageous. And you're thinking this is exactly how he's going to approach the cross until the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because though Jesus is God, and though He knows everything, He had never felt 
what he was feeling in this moment. Separation. Abandonment. Chasm. Darkness. No fellowship with his father. And so he says, remove this cup. If there's any way, could you remove it from me? And then look, the last thing you see in his prayer is absolutely beautiful. You see his rest in his father. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Yeah, I believe that Mark would have us see two important realities here in the statement, yet not what I will, but what you will. Make no mistake about it, Jesus was a man. He felt temptation. He felt fear. He felt darkness. He felt loneliness. He felt all of those emotional feelings in this moment. But He wants us to see that no matter how much He does not want to be separated from His Father, no matter how much He doesn't want to be um, experiencing the sinfulness, because this is the thing, y'all. It's not just separation that Jesus is anguishing about. It's the fact that He's going to be identified with sin. He's going to be bearing sin. Galatians 3.13 and 2 Corinthians 5 both say that He became a curse for us. That He became sin on our behalf. The Holy Son of God becomes sin on our behalf. He becomes identified with that. That becomes His, his identity. That becomes what He is at that moment. That... It's terrible. It's agonizing to him that not only is there separation, but now there's sin attached to him. And he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And what he's saying is this, and I don't know if I can explain it clearly, but he's saying is I don't want to be attached to sin. And I don't want to have separation from you. But I know I want what you want. My will is ultimately what your will is. And so, Father, would you carry out your will? And so Mark is driving us to a place, y'all. And it doesn't matter what dark hour you are facing right now, what you've faced in the past, or what you might happen to you next week, next year, or a decade from now. Mark would say, be where Jesus was. And say, I've got this will. And I don't want to experience this thing. But I know my deepest and most ultimate desire is your desire and your will. And so I'm subjugating my will and my desire to your desire because that's what I want the most. Is that what your prayers are like? Is that what your requests to God are like? Father, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And so his desperate prayer... He ultimately finds rest in the will of God trumping no matter what happens. And the final thing that I want us to see in the passion of the Savior is there at the very end of verse 41. He says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? 
It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He shows his his passion in his unflinching resolve to carry out the will of his Father. Unflinching resolve. And I call it unflinching, and I call it resolve because he says, It's enough. It's done. It's over. The hour is here. It's come. He's betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up. Let's go. And he doesn't say, let's go and run away. He's actually saying, let's go and meet them. Because I am now embracing all that my Father has sent my way. I am embracing the wrath. I'm embracing the judgment. I'm embracing the attachment to sin. I'm embracing the curse of the law. I'm embracing it all because that's the Father's will. I take it on. And so we see his resolve as a result of prayer, desperate prayer, as a result of his pervasive agony. As part of his intentional shepherding, he is saying, I am resolved to do this. And Mark wants us to see the the contrast between the disciples and Jesus. And he wants us to see the, the failure of the disciples in their lack of humility before Jesus, in their lack of teachability before Jesus, in their lack of spiritual alertness, in their lack of prayer, and in their lack of devotion to Him overall. And He's saying, look over here at Jesus and look at His humility before His Father. Look at His desire to do the Father's will no matter what. Look at His humility in asking God what God wants, to, what God wants Him to do. And look at His resolve to be alert and to be prayerful. That's what Mark wants us to see. And he's saying, listen, in this case, don't be like the disciples, but rather be like your great Savior. Follow His example. I want to give you three applications. You ask the question, what am I to do with this? I think the very first thing that, that Mark would say is, admit your guilt. Admit your guilt. Um. I believe it was Martin Luther who once said, we all walk around with nails in our pockets. As we ask the question, who put Jesus on the cross? Newsweek magazine has asked that question and tried to come to an answer. Books have written have been written trying to come to an answer. And the reality is, did Judas put, on the, Judas put Jesus on the cross? Yes. Did Roman soldiers put Jesus on the cross? Yes. Did chief priests and scribes put Jesus on the cross? Yes. Did, did, a, did a Jewish mob put Jesus on the cross? Yes. Did Pilate put Jesus on the cross? Yes. But each one of us put Jesus on the cross. We put Him on the cross because of our sin. 
because of our idolatry, because of our selfishness, because of our rebellion, because of our spiritual sloth, because of all of our sin, we put Him there. And Mark would say, do not walk away from this moment in Gethsemane and think that you had nothing to do with it. And so, I would say, right now, let's pause. And I want to give you the opportunity to speak silently to God and admit your guiltiness before Him. Admit your guiltiness before Him. You can even say something like, God, the reason that Jesus had to drink the cup was because of my personal sin. I'm not just a sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm guilty. The second thing now that I think that Mark would want us to do, I think he'd want us to embrace the Savior. Embrace the Savior. Like he he doesn't want us to read this account and just feel completely and utterly helpless and hopeless because because of our depravity, because of our failure. Because of our denials and betrayals and we look at it and we say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm worth no, nothing. I am nothing. I can do nothing that's, that's helpful and nothing that's hopeful and nothing that's good and nothing that's productive because I, I'm just nothing but a person who just falls into the lust of my flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of my own life. Peter would say it's actually true about you. But you have hope because we see the Savior and we see His resolve and we see His love and we see His passion and we see His energy, His effort to to absolve you, to to resolve the problem, the chasm that you have between God. Listen, when He says, remove this cup from me, I want you to know, Redeemer Church, that this cup was a cup that was full of wrath. It was full of judgment. It was full of condemnation. It was full of punishment. It was full of everything that you would never, ever, ever want to experience. And Jesus, on the cross, takes that cup and He turns it up and He drinks it and He does not leave a sip. He does not leave some drops. He leaves not an iota of a single drop of God's wrath. Why? Because He loves you. He loves you. So do not dare think that you have to be condemned. That you have to be judged. That you have to walk in hopelessness and helplessness because Jesus drank the last drop on your behalf. So embrace Him. Embrace Him. He resolved Himself to go all the way to the cross so that you and I would never feel the punishment, the loneliness, the judgment, the condemnation that He felt. Embrace Him. Embrace Him. And because of that, that gives us the third application. Offer your life. Offer your life. So admit your guilt, embrace your Savior, and offer your life. To him. I would say this. Don't be like Peter and the fellows and say, okay, now that that's true, 
I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I don't care what every Christian in the whole world possibly does. I pledge my allegiance. I will stand by you no matter what. That is arrogant ignorance. All right? You go to Christ the way that Christ goes to His Father and says, I'm down before you, Father. I've got desires. I've got struggles. Not my will, but your will be done. Lead me. Guide me. Help me. And then when I fail, just like the disciples failed, would you pick me up and would you come to me the way that Jesus came to His disciples in Galilee? And would you love me and forgive me and get me going back on the road of following you again? That's what Mark is driving us to today. Phil, if you would come up. I want to ask you now, if you would, just bow your heads. Just in a time of meditation, I want to ask you right now to to as, as seriously and as deeply as you can admit your guilt, embrace your Savior, and offer your life in response to this light to this night that was like no other. So I want you to get a glimpse one more time of the darkness of Gethsemane. So I want you to picture it right now in your mind. Jesus alone. The weight of sin bearing down on Him. The hopelessness, the fear, the darkness. And I want to tell you right now, you don't live at Gethsemane. It's not where you live. Because three days later, the tomb was open. The rock was pushed aside. Light was shining through. And there was no Jesus. You see, you don't live in darkness. You live in light. You live in victory. You live in accomplishment. You live in redemption. You live in future. You live in the kingdom. And so, let's be thankful for the agony of Gethsemane and let's walk in the victory of the resurrection and the empty tomb outside of Golgotha. You want to do that? Let's do that. I want to tell you, we've got these cards. I want you to take these cards today and pass them out to your friends and your neighbors for the upcoming Christmas service. I also want you to know that if you're living in darkness... Like if you just feel helpless, if it feels dark to you in your life, you either don't have Christ or right now you're having a struggle appropriating Christ's victory in your life. Ron Marino, one of our elders, is going to be in our back room right behind uh, this stage um, and wants to pray with you, counsel you, and help you any way that you possi- he possibly can. And we're about to enjoy a meal together, so please stay with us as we fellowship together. I want you to go now in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ who not only died in your behalf and experienced Gethsemane on your behalf, but also rose again on the third day that you might walk in victory with Him. Amen.